0: As we continue in worship through the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, please give attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. And in the hearing of all the peoples, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you now that you would meet with us as we approach your word. We need your spirit. Apart from his work in this place right now, we are unable to perceive the truth that is before us. But with his help, with his guidance, with the light that he can show, we can know you, we can commune with you, we can learn of your rich promises, we can learn of your great call. I would ask you now in this hour, if you would, please. Be patient with us, the listeners. And I would ask you to be patient with me, the preacher. For today, Lord, as we look into your word, there are things which I seek to be more true of me. And for your church, I would ask that you would further realize the teaching of this passage in our midst. Prepare the soil of our hearts now that we might receive the seed of the gospel. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1888 that a well-known Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel picked up a French newspaper, as he did most mornings, to look specifically this day for the obituary of his brother, who had died just two days earlier. Much to his surprise, the newspaper had made a great mistake. One that confused him, frustrated him, and upset him all at the same time. For this newspaper had confused the death of his brother with his own death. Alfred read his own obituary that morning in the French newspaper, and what he read horrified him. The obituary catalogued his amassing of great wealth through the munitions industry, which was the way in which he worked and the way in which he made his money. But it was one line in particular that he struggled with. It said, Alfred Noble will be remembered most for making it possible to kill more people more quickly than anyone else who has ever lived. You see, Alfred Noble was the inventor of what we now call dynamite. And his involvement in the munitions industry was the realization that this man had created a weapon that could destroy lives at an extent and at a speed that had never before been done. Now, Alfred was haunted by this obituary recollecting his own life. He committed not to be the merchant of death, as he was described in his obituary, but to instead use the remainder of his life to be called the merchant of life. In fact, that's exactly what he did. In the remaining eight years of his life, he took his power and he took his wealth to establish what came to be known as the Nobel Prize. Uh, His remainder of his fortune uh, was $9 million when he died. All of it he gave towards funding those who would give their lives to human flourishing, to life and to peace. Now, you all know about the Nobel Prizes. That comes as no surprise to you. What you may not have known is that Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. He's lesser known now for that, what we might call, darker side, at least in reading his obituary with regards to death. And knowing what was thought of him before he died... And reading it had a transformative impact upon his life. It changed the direction of what he committed his life to. In fact, the story of Alfred Noble really teaches us that there there really is two ways to live. Either we're going to live for ourselves, amassing the wealth, building a reputation for what it is that we've accomplished, And then die and leave it all behind and to be forgotten in the dustbin of history. Or to live our life as it really is. A gift from God. And to pour all of our energies into serving the Lord and into answering His call. And expanding as best as the Spirit may be pleased to use us. The kingdom of the Lord. Every single one of us are making decisions big and small, every single day, in line with whether or not we are living for ourselves or living for the calling of God. The question is, what are the decisions of your life saying about what you're actually committed to? What you're really committed to? What are the small and big things that you're giving your life to now, saying about what you're really committed to as a person? If we were to open up the of this morning and read your obituary, how would you be known? It's really the question. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn encourages us to go through the exercise of obituary writing. He says, take time in the middle of your life to stare at your life squarely in the face and write your obituary truthfully. Write it the way you know your life, not the way people like to talk about you at your funeral, which is remembering all of the good things that were may or maybe not true about you. And make up, in some ways, a a fabrication of uh, the kind of person maybe we really were. You ever notice this? How you'll go to a funeral and we all knew the person, but somehow or another between the moment they took their last breath in the funeral, they became a saint. <laughs> uh, but the realization is we all really know the real story of that individual. You know your real story. You, you know things about you that nobody else Knows If you were to put pen and paper together and write out the obituary in the way that you know your life, what would it reveal? What, what would it say that you're committed to? You see, we really start living when we begin to prepare to die. We've been talking about that for the last several weeks together. How there's a, there's a remarkable clarity that comes in At the moment of death, invading into our life. It's reminded of a quote of Yeats just this week where the poet says, things reveal themselves when passing away. Is that true? Things reveal themselves when they're passing away. All of a sudden, as we lose things, as people go, as things go, the value of those things all of a sudden increase. In the perception of our mind's eye. Jesus is pushing us towards that kind of clarity today. With the pairing of this, what we might call a study in contrast. A study between the scribes who are described as living a self-centered and self-consumed life here in this passage. Constantly giving themselves over to themselves and to their own attention or the life of the widow, the what's described here as a poor widow. Who actually gives us an example of what it is we're really called to be and to do. So, so we're going to look at this passage under just two headings today. We want to look first at the caution uh, that Jesus gives us in the opening verses surrounding uh, the scribes. And then we want to look at the commendation. In the concluding verses surrounding the example of the widow. Now you see, first, the caution given to us in verses 45 to 47. Look at it with me. In the hearing of all the people, he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. That word beware. Beware of the scribes. That's a Middle English word. It's a word that combines the word to be or the verb to be and the noun war. To beware is to be at war. Or it is to be in the posture of being threatened. Or feeling as if some harm is about to befall you. Those of you who have actually been in war know a lot more about this than I do. But I have some sense of what it's like to beware, be war, to be in the context of a threat. And you know what that feels like as well. You've had that occurrence in your home when something goes bump in the night. And, And you, like me, are... Awakened very quickly you jump out of your bed and you listen credibly, attentively even investigatively find out what is this sound your attentions are on high alert it's remarkable that your attentions aren't on high alert when your alarm goes off in the morning but your attentions are very high alert something in the middle of the night goes bump and there you are with the plunger in hand, <laughs> tiptoeing through the house, going to flush out, <laughs> flush out any enemy invader who's come into your house going to do you and your family harm, of course, only to recognize it's some balloon wrapped around a ceiling fan or something like that that's causing the racket. No, there's a there's a kind of beware that happens any time that we are under a threat. The, the the question is, do we see the threat? really what the question of this particular text is. Do we see the threat? Are we aware of why we need to be aware of the scribes? The indication here in the text is that the disciples probably didn't see it. If you have to tell someone, beware of something, it's an indicator that they're not beware of it. It's it's the two-year-old daughter who's dancing in the kitchen in her ballerina outfit and doesn't see that the Door of the oven is open and it's 350 degrees. And mom draws it to the daughter's attention with the words, Stand back! Get away! Beware! You don't realize that you're walking into the midst of bodily harm. You're oblivious to the threat that is all around you. That seems to be the context in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples because he's been listening and he's been watching the Pharisees, the Herodians, now the scribes in this passage, and he doesn't like what he sees and what he hears. He he sees a people who are more committed uh, to themselves than they are to the role and the office that they inhabit. They're more committed to being consumers of the people of God rather than being servants of the people of God. They don the names of shepherd and caretaker and cure of soul. But really what we see is they're described here as those who are eager for the acclamation and the attention of others through ostentatious clothing. Through seeking out welcomings and greetings and blessings rather than passing them along. For for maneuvering their way to the best seats in the house at the greatest parties rather than pushing others forward And first into those roles. These are people instead who were called to supply the widows. Called to supply the widows with the provisions that they need. But instead are described as devouring, consuming widows' houses. It's possible and even likely in Luke's arrangement here as he describes the devouring of a widow's house. He immediately then goes into the example of a widow who maybe it was her house. That was devoured. What we see is that Jesus is spotting that the shepherds of the people of Israel are not shepherds. That the scribes who are to be committed to the teaching and the call of the Bible don't actually know the text themselves and are not committing themselves to it. But in fact it is their pride, it is their greed, it is their hypocrisy that stands out. Now why does Jesus say beware of this? We might look at this and think to ourselves, well, well, surely the disciples would have seen this. Surely they would have been aware of this. But sometimes the things that are the most dangerous or the things that are most closest to us are often the things that we're actually blind to. They had grown up their whole life with the Pharisees and the scribes. They had seen this behavior It had been normalized by the time in the first century where these disciples were. It didn't strike them maybe as out of the court or something to be concerned about or be wary of or cautious about. That's a possibility. It's also possible that they had no intentions of really yoking themselves with the scribes so there's no reason for them to be on their guard against them. I mean, they were followers of Jesus after all. They were ones who were hanging upon his words, the words of life. Why is it that Jesus says, beware of the scribes? Was there something that he saw in the disciples that made sense for him to sound the alarm in the midst of all of the people that they would listen, to see, and take heed? That they not be caught in the trap of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, I think that's likely. You see, Jesus knows that our tendency is like the disciples' tendency. We really love ourselves. We really love ourselves. We're really committed to ourselves. And the tilt of our life is towards the tendency of following whatever it is our heart goes pitter-patter for. To, to follow after those things which, which we like. And, you know, I think most of us probably like nice Welcomed greetings and great seats at the local concert and wonderful positionings and parties where you can enjoy great food. It would have been very easy for the disciples to stand back and look at the clothing of the scribes and think, huh, that's nice. And then look at the clothing of Jesus. That's interesting. I noticed noticed Jesus, you know, sit at the same seats that they sit at. I noticed that when we go to the synagogue, there's kind of this back corner that they have to kind of almost clean out for you and your disciples to get there. I also noticed that the scribes have the best seat in the house. I like good seats. Do you see the tendency in all of our hearts is to be drawn towards the things that we like. The things that give us pleasure, the things that our self hungers for, the things that a voice inside of our heads constantly telling us that we need in order to feel happy, in order to feel satisfied, in order to be content. It's the kind of thing that we saw even in the Garden of Eden. With Genesis chapter 3, I mean, this goes back to the very beginning of time. This gravitational pull of sin Tugging at our heart. I don't know if you noticed, but the serpent didn't come to Eve, tempting her by sacrifice. You notice the idea of sacrifice is not tempting, it doesn't tug at you. But, but, the, but the idea of being self centered, of being like God, of taking and eating the forbidden fruit and having the knowledge of good and evil, yeah, that tugs. Oh, that tugs. Oh, yeah, there's that gravitational pull. Go ahead, take the bite. You'll be like God. You'll feel so much better after you do. You see, the scribes are following in the footsteps of their father, the serpent. The self-centeredness, the normalizing of it. They've become those who are consumers rather than caretakers. And it happens so quickly, doesn't it? It happens very quickly. In fact, it happens imperceptibly. I was just having a wonderful conversation with a couple of my elders and a member in the congregation. And I was wrestling with what this passage really means. What are the implications, what are the applications that stem from this particular passage? And we begin to say, how does it mean even for a North American to even begin to process this kind of self-centered Tendency, this tilt, this drift, this default position of thinking of ourselves first—we live in a in a context in which that's even encouraged. We live within a capitalistic system through which that's nurtured. We are we are breathing this in. Day in and day out, our lungs are expanding and deflating with this sort of message getting in and out of our hearts. So much so that when we actually stumble upon the radical nature of the call of where Jesus goes in this passage, it seems so radical, so far-fetched, that we're at a total loss to even think about it. We're discouraged at the beginning. We just want to give up. It seems like we have so much ground to make up, and it's because, I believe, that self-centeredness... Well, it works a lot like carbon monoxide. Can't see it. Can't taste it. Can't smell it. It's, it's everywhere. And, and you, unbeknownst to you, you're, you're standing next to the scribes and you're breathing in the toxin into your lung. You begin to see some of the manifest of the decay in your life because of your slavish commitment to materialism and consumerism and the fact that you feel better by going to the mall. Those are the kinds of things where the indicators are there. Where do you run when you're suffering? Where do you go to get a a high after being down? What are the things that stir you? And what you'll probably find is it's a substance. It's a thing. It's a material. It's a greeting. It's a good seat. It's a wonderful meal. It's the things that are being described here by the Pharisees. And what happens is, like carbon monoxide, you begin to feel some of the effects But it's so pervasive and you can't imagine living any other way that you just continue to breathe it until you lull yourself and drift off into a spiritual death. You see, this is what Jesus is cautioning us against. And what a caution it is. What a caution it is. He's asking us to take serious inventory of our life and he's saying, what about the scribes resonates with your life? How is it that you look a little bit like them? How is it that your motivations mirror theirs? And how can we begin to turn from scribal error into what we see beautiful here as the commendation of the widow's generosity? You see, Luke moves from this warning of self-centeredness in this passage into what we might call just an exhibition of true sacrifice. Jesus turns away his eye from the disciples and from the crowd and he can see the temple treasury. The treasury was in the court of women, so it was outside the the close precincts of the temple. It was accessible by all and there would have been 13 sort of trumpet-shaped coffers that would have been placed outside the temple so that multiple people at a time could come and give and bring their money to be remembering that this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's just entered Jerusalem. It is the feast of Passover which means all the Jews from the diaspora from all over are flooding into Jerusalem. It is likely that many of them have stockpiled their free will offerings to come during this time and to dump them into the treasury. That seems to be the scene that we're actually have here as Jesus is looking at the temple, and he sees, not surprisingly, many wealthy people come—gold and silver and shekels and denarii. Jesus is not impressed. Large sums are being. Pour it into the, to the brass trumpet-shaped coffers making an awful racket. And Jesus is not, is not impressed with what it is they're giving because he tells us they give out of their abundance. They give as those who have discretionary income. They give as those who supply it simply out of their margin. After they get all it is that they want, if they've got a little bit left, they give it to the Lord. In other words, they give a lot like we do. But, but he notices a widow. She catches his eye. A widow who comes with two small copper coins. The Greek word for the copper coins is the word lepta. The word lepta literally means something that is thin or peeling. It's a a description of how light of value and size the coin was that she held. She had two of them. Now, scholars tell us that the lepta, one single lepta, is worth about one-eighth of a penny by modern-day figures. What this means is that this is the kind of coin... If you were to pass as you walk on the sidewalk outside to the way of your car, most of us are far too wealthy to bend over and pick it up. That's the kind of coin this is. But yet as he sees that she puts in the two lepta into the church treasury, he spots it and says, that woman gets it. That woman gets it. Because everyone else has given out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, Gave everything that she had. Now this phrase, out of her poverty, means she gave from what she didn't have. It could literally be translated as that. She was taking bread out of her mouth and putting it in the treasury. She she was utterly reliant upon the one in whom she was giving to. It's a remarkable picture. In fact, if we, if we really dig into the translation here, I couldn't find an English translation this week that actually displayed the, the kind of raw language that's being used here through the giving. We have this phrase, out of her poverty she gave all that she had to live on, but reality is what the word there is that she gave her bios, It's simply the word for life. It's simply the word for life. That out of her poverty, the woman gave her life into the treasury. She literally gave everything that was hers. I've been pondering this week. This woman had two of these coins. She She had two lepta. She had two-eighths of a penny's worth, and as she went to the treasury, if she were to slip one of the lepta into the treasury, by any standard, we would have said, this woman is remarkably generous. The woman has given half of her income to the Lord, and that's not what she does. Now I've been challenged this week even as a pastor. I'm sitting with someone in our congregation who has two lepta, and they're asking me about giving. How do I advise them? This passage challenged me. I've I've advised people on giving. I don't know that I've said it this way. I don't know that I've, I've said, yeah, I see you have very little. You know, the widow gave everything being very honest with me. Now, I would, I would imagine that would be a very short meeting, a very frustrating meeting <laughs> for the person who had that meeting with me. But you tell me, would I be faithful in that instruction? Would it be faithful for me to challenge in that one? It, you know, it was odd this week as I was reading on Friday this very passage, I happened to open up a sweet card from one of you in the congregation, and you know that we incurred some extra expenses with our funerals this month, and all of the things we've gone through as a family, and there was a really nice gift, a small, wonderful, generous gift given to us. So we can, I've got this passage open as I'm opening my mail. What do I do? What do you you make of this? Now, I, I struggle sometimes with passages because they are hard to understand. But there are other passages I struggle with because they are very easy to understand. This is the latter. The frustrating part about this passage is there's no qualifier there's no caveat nobody talks about her mortgage payment or her inheritance for her children if she were to have any or all of the things that are floating through your mind all of the things like well yeah but i have a family to take care of for and there's school to to pay for and there's clothes to buy and all of those kind of questions they're just not here they're just not here (laughs) which is which is very troubling now, I realize not all of us are in exactly the same place in this room. I mean, even in a church that's very faithful, for the most part, in its giving, you still only have a very, a very small percentage, if you think about it, who really gives to the local body. And, and yet some of you give very generously. Some of you maybe don't hardly give at all, but this certainly changes the kind of framing of the discussion. And the debate about giving, doesn't it? Like, the questions we love to ask. Like, do I give on the gross or the net? feels really silly, doesn't it? All of a sudden, that seems really silly. It seems as if those kinds of questions are saying, tell me how much I need to give in order to be considered faithful. Or tell me at least how little I must give in order to not fall into sin. Don't make me exercise sacrifice, faith. Don't let me be pressed into having to consider whether to forego lunch because I want to go give to the church. I'm just simply giving you an illustration out of this passage. She took bread out of her own mouth, it's all she had to live on, out of her poverty. Not out of our abundance. Not out of our margin. I don't know if you feel the gravitational pull of walking by the tithe box on Sunday morning and thinking, I was going to take a vacation. But now I've got a gift to the Lord. I I will be frank with you. I don't have that gravitational pull week after week. I'm with you in this. I'm struggling alongside with you. What do we make of this? What do we do with what in the world is he saying here? Well, I wanted you to first picture in this passage what I undoubtedly believe Christ is setting up for us as an example. There's not many people in the scriptures that Jesus says, Hey, look at them. Do what they do. There's not many of those. There's a centurion who had the great faith The one who told Jesus, Jesus, you don't even have to go to my house. Just say the words and my daughter will be healed. And he says, what great faith and commends. But most of the time we don't see Jesus walking around going, I commend this person for the righteousness and the virtue that they're displaying. They clearly get it. In this case, he does. He sets this woman up as an example for us, as an instruction that we are to learn. And I can't help but believe that what Jesus sees... And first and primary focus is a glimpse of what he's come to do. It's a glimpse first. Before it's actually a call, it's a glimpse of the gospel itself. Do you see, when I read of this woman who gave out of her poverty all that she had, I have Philippians 2, 5 through 8 come to mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He became poor. What, What drove Jesus, the one who owns all things, who made everything by the word of his power, who has absolute supremacy, What caused him to give it all up to come here to the earth? To be motivated to be poor. To be poorer than he is. What motivated him? Love for you. Love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He saw something of value and all of his riches he was willing to spend in order to receive it. It's an incredible picture of the gospel. And what do we see but Jesus in his poverty as he walks through this life, not dressed like the scribes, not receiving the welcome and the greeting like the scribes, not eating at those particular feasts, but one who didn't have a place to lay his head. Birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. One who lived as a homeless man. One who didn't have possessions to His name. The few possessions that He had were were gambled away. They were at the bottom of the cross, which were likely the things that were actually on His body at the time. Out of His poverty, Jesus gave all that He had. Out of his poverty, he came on the cross and he gave you everything. He, he filled up the account of your life with his inheritance. To the glory of the grace of the gospel. Do you see what we're being shown in this, in this picture of the woman who gives everything that she has out of her poverty is a picture of our Savior. We're seeing a picture of the gospel enacted in this woman's life. Now, the question comes, in light of that, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what then is your standard of giving? Let that settle on you. Let that settle on you. Do you feel really good, those of you faithful 10% tithers, do you feel really good about your faithfulness? I mean, you're really doing it, right? A lot of these people aren't tithing. But you are a tither. You give 10%. You almost give as much as what you gave the waiter last night at the restaurant you ate at. Percentage-wise. You almost give God that much. Puts it in very different perspectives, doesn't it? It It changes. It changes the perspective that we're, that we're, we're looking at here. Uh, there's a radical reorientation, isn't there, to the vision of what is we've been called in order to give. What if the gospel became our paradigm for giving? Here's, here's why we're going to both be enamored and gloriously amazed and simultaneously very frustrated by the instruction of this passage. Jesus is essentially telling us that there is no measure of what you can give that would be enough to what it is that you've been given. There's no measure. If martyrdom was the life that you wind up living and giving up as a sacrifice unto God, it wouldn't even pale in comparison to what God has done. You'd still be in grace. You'd just be doing your duty. Now that's incredibly uncomfortable. Because I, like you, want a figure. I want a percentage. I want amount of my time, amount of my talents, amount of my treasure. It's almost as if he wants everything. Do you know the early church got this? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes about the churches in Macedonia, and I want you to see, I want you to see the, remarkable, the remarkable connection between these phrases because they're bizarre, if you just think about it. Listen to what he says. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Did you hear what he said? I want to tell you about the grace in Macedonia. And then... Look at what he says the grace in Macedonia has done. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, people are severely tested in affliction, persecuted, they have the abundance of joy. And in their extreme poverty, they are overflowing with wealth and generosity. Now wait, let me get this right. (laughs) Paul says, I want to tell you about the church in Macedonia. Corinth, would you be encouraged about what the grace of God is doing? They are a people persecuted day in and day out. A people suffering with great affliction. And I want to tell you, they're exuberant in joy. What in the world is going on here? This is a people who have absolutely no money. They are wrecked with poverty. And you know what they're doing for you, Corinth, and for Jerusalem? They're pouring out their lepta in an abundance of generosity. It's the most glorious thing. Grace has come to Macedonia. Do you see, all of a sudden, something awakened in the church at Macedonia. They saw things the way that they really were. They were able to live poorer Because they knew how rich they were. They were able to be free with their money. Unentangled by the things of materialism. Because they had a place reserved in heaven for them. That Jesus had gone. And that he had marked out a mansion in glory with his presence by their side. He had become their treasure. And thus everything else could be lost in the way that Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. That I count all things as rubbish in the light of gaining Jesus Christ. You see, the question is, what is your standard for giving? What What are you measuring up to? Your neighbor in the pew Statistics that come out of the local government for charitable giving or the gospel or the greatest gift of all it has been given to you. Now in the light of this glorious grace, I want to give you three, I think, fair, direct, simple applications from the scripture. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's not for me to do. That's not for me to do. I feel like the Apostle Paul in that wonderful 2 Corinthians 8, as he's talking to the church at Corinth, he says, I don't want to command you to give. I want you to see that Jesus was rich and he became poor, so that you who are poor became rich. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's what I want. So as you hear these just very simple practical applications, hear them in that spirit. And I want to do it in the context of this passage. For the non-givers among us, because we're in here. We're in here. The non-givers are in here. My instruction is really simple for you. It's, It's incredibly simple. Give. Give. Start giving. Start giving. That's what this passage is telling us. I don't think anybody in here would say, I'm too poor to give. Probably not after today. Probably not after today. Give. For the, for the giver from abundance, who's in this passage, which is, let's be quite honest, that's most of us. Is I if I would categorize myself in here? There are times I'm the sacrificial giver. I'm often the giver from abundance. I'm often the giver from abundance. This is my help instruction. Give until it costs. Give until it costs. Give until it begins to look a little bit like a cross. So that you can say like Paul, I'm a sharer in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give until it costs. C.S. Lewis said, if we're giving and it is not hampering our lifestyle, then we're probably not giving enough. We're probably not giving enough. That's a pretty safe rule. If you're giving from your abundance, give until it costs. And I think this was maybe even the hardest For those of you who are sacrificial givers, and I know so many of you are actually in this room. You're sacrificial givers. I want you to see this passage. You know what it's calling you to? Give more. Give more. Give more. With a smile. With a sense of cheer. You know, we give... 5% of our income this year, next year we get to give 10. We give 10% of our income this year, but next year we get to give 20. With eagerness, give more. Give more. Not because you have to, because in the gospel you want to. You want to. You want to see the exemplification of the cross. And the glory and the beauty of God's love that's been poured out in your heart, modeled in the way that you live, so that you will boast in the cross. You will boast in the cross. As a congregation and as a pastor, I want to learn with you, what would it be like to live poorer than we do? Because we know how rich we are. What would that Let's encourage each other in this. No condemnation in this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a reason to give. That's a reason to give. No condemnation. Only joy. Only joy. Let's encourage each other in this. Until we see the true giver of all life. And we lay our eyes on him. And we will know whatever it was that we gave in this life it paled in comparison to what we got in Let's pray with that in. Father, please provoke in us. I do mean provoke in us. And if need be to grieve us into repentance. That we might say yes. Yes to this call. Yes to giving. Yes to sacrificial giving. Not by any legalistic standard or pursuit of making ourselves feel like we're faithful, but with a vision that has caught the crucified and risen Lord. And so Lord, I pray that you would let Jesus show up in our dollars and our cents and in the writings of our checks and the ways that we care for each other. Let Jesus be praised.